HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com. Hello and welcome to another episode of Cutting the Curd. I'm Jessica Kesselman and I am joined today by two guests who are the co-owners of Monger's Provisions. This is two stores in the metro Detroit area. I love that we are getting out of the coastal kind of urban meccas for cheese and looking at what is happening across the country Zach Berg and Will Werner, they met and created something really special in Michigan. And we are going to take a deep dive into what it's like to be independent shop owners, what it's like to open more than one location, and just how things are going. I think we have a lot to learn from Zach and Will. Welcome to Cutting the Curd. Oh, thank you so much for having us. I'm so, so excited. Thank you very much. So one of the reasons why I wanted the two of you on here is because, um, first of all, again, talking about independent cheese shops um, in the United States uh, and, and also, you know, talking to the two of you in up there in Michigan where you have access to things that maybe we don't have in, um, in other parts of the country. But when I talk to people who own cheese shops, they often talk about um, how crazy someone must be to open a cheese shop. <laughs> and you guys have two of them. And the other thing is that I feel like independent cheese shops are kind of having a renaissance right now. There's a lot of them are opening. And then there's um, lots of people talking about expanding. And so um, one of the things that I love when looking at your website and looking at your story uh, is that you guys have a mission statement. So I would love to start um, with that and tell us about your mission statement. Yeah. Well, I'm going to jump in if that's all right. Um, Go for it. I feel like a lot of the reason why we started with the mission statement was directly informed out of us leaving the Bay Area to open up this store. And so that's just 
we were both in San Francisco for a while. And there, if you open up a business or start a business, you have a mission statement. So I feel like it was just, <laughs> we, we thought that we had to. Um, I don't know if it was more complex than that. I mean, I definitely know we had a lot of intentions. It was more than just opening up a business and we wanted to express that. But I wonder, Will, do you have any feeling on why we chose to do a mission statement so early on? Um, you know, I think that it was it was sort of to have some guiding, you know, guiding concept of what we're trying to achieve and what the business, you know, was about. Um, I mean, it's it's got, it certainly has elements that help with marketing. And when you're starting out defining like why, you know, why shop with us um, versus somewhere else or, but I think that for us, we we talked a lot about you know why would why do specialty retail? What was attractive to um, us about that type of business? And I think that you know it was really about connecting with people and and learning and having um, you know shared experiences. And so that was sort of the one of the foundational principles of the business. And we were, you know, we were really lucky that we felt like we ended up hitting that note out the gate. We had this crazy grand opening and, you know, that very day, Will ended up talking to a veteran about chocolate from Vietnam. Will, was it, was it our opening day, correct? Uh, five years ago, but it was, yeah, if it wasn't the opening, opening day, week, that's it just was, say it opening was within week. the first yeah. few days. Yeah. yeah. And showing him chocolate from Aru, and the gentleman said that like he had never looked at this map with that frame before, thinking about the chocolate and the regions in that way. For him, it was a place him and his buddies were stationed. And that was a, a really impactful moment where we realized that the intentions we set forward had been, you know, realized in some kind of way right off the bat. So your mission statement has within it, it says, we are culinary outfitters who supply provisions for a journey of cultivation, connection, and passion. So where did your cultivation, connection, and passion start? Where do you, was this in the Bay Area? Did this start? What were you guys, um, what were you guys doing in the Bay Area? Because you guys knew each other when you were long time. Yeah. Since, when you were kid, when you were growing ten. up. Yeah. So, um, and you're from Michigan. Correct. So I, I also did one of, you know, some time out in the Bay area and I really feel like I, that period of time for me was where I started to develop my food point of view and started to really put things together. Um, but I didn't start working in food until I got back to New York. What were you guys doing in the Bay Area and how did that inform this um, cultivation connection and passion journey that led you to Monger's Provisions? Will, would you like me to start? Uh, go for it. Well, so I had been in food for a long time. I was the, um, I guess, the, the resident foodie. Uh, I started at 12 years old in food in Michigan, washing dishes not necessarily doing anything very refined, 
for me, my big jump uh, off where this journey of cultivation and passion really started would have been at Zingerman's. So I worked at Zingerman's after hospitality business school at Michigan State before going to culinary arts school. And that's where it went from just being a line cook frying food and saucing it and tossing it or whatever line cook kind of phrase you'd like to use to this idea that food had a story to tell and that I wanted to tell it. And then I went to the Bay Area and went to culinary school and worked in fine dining and eventually found my way back to cheese where I could tell that story and be more passionate about food. So I had a very food, I was always in the food industry. Will had a different roundabout way of getting where we were. And Will, what was your journey? So um, I grew up really loving food and cooking. Um, You know, it was definitely part of uh, family life. And from a young age, I liked kind of exploring different cuisines and trying to cook them at home and watching cooking shows. You know, I remember watching like uh, Graham Care, the Galloping Gourmet. I don't know if you guys remember that show. Uh, it was a PBS cooking show. Um, and then also like Julia Child and um, Jacques Pepin. And so it was always a, a part of my life. Um, and then as I, as I got older, I, you know, I continued to cook and, but never really worked in the business, um, at all. But I ended up in the Bay area a little bit before Zach, um, after graduating from college and I followed my then girlfriend and now wife out there. And, um, I graduated with a degree in geology and that's what I that's what I got a job in. So I did that for about seven years is uh, doing environmental consulting work. Um, and food was, a, food was definitely a big part of my life in the Bay area. I, I would definitely, I would build weeks around it. Sometimes we'd have a group of friends that we cooked Sunday dinners with frequently. And I would, you know, drive up to Marin County to go to the duck farm to buy ducks or, you know, go to the farmer's mm-hmm. market to find um, special ingredients for the dinner that weekend or, you know, even foraging for mussels out on the coast. It's it's such a rich, rich area if you love food and you love great ingredients from, you know, what it offers with the produce um, and the dairy industry and the fruits and vegetables to the, you know, king salmon that you can catch off the coast or Dungeness crabs that you can, you know, get on a paddleboard at Baker Beach and go catch crabs out there while looking at the Golden Gate. It's, it's really an amazing area for kind of immersing yourself in food culture and learning a lot about a lot of different cuisines, too. And I would say just as it pertains to our story, while I was cooking professional, whether Michigan or California, Will was cooking. I spent a great deal of my free time with Will enjoying food. And Will has always been just an incredible, he's always had an incredible palate and ability to put together food. And so, um, 
Yeah, like on the weekends that I was able to get as a as a line cook, you don't get a lot of them. I would join those Sunday dinners, and you know that led us to deciding to cater Will's wedding um, back in Michigan, which was the first time we really had worked together in a significant way since Blockbuster at 18 years old. I that, worked at Blockbuster <laughs> too. Yeah. <laughs> it was our senior year of high school job together. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> did, you, did you ever have frisbee fights with uh, DVD cases? No, I'm older than you. It was all VHS. Yeah. More dangerous. <laughs> I mean, we definitely we, threw VHS tapes at each other sometimes, but those hurt a lot more. <laughs> they don't snail the way I, a DVD does. Right, right. But what's funny is, or well, it's not funny, but interesting that, well, in, in a lot of what you said in describing um the Bay Area and, and your your story of, of food there was about sourcing, right? Mm. It was about like where where you went to buy ingredients or or where or being where the food is or being where the fish are, being where you know. Um, and that, I mean, I don't know if if that was something that you knew at the time, but. Um, but it is interesting that a lot of your experience, the way you tell it, really is about sourcing. Yeah, I mean, it's a. <clears throat> I mean, I guess I've, I've been aware of that. I like, kind of doing, you know, I like doing research and finding good stuff. It's uh, at this point, it's actually a very small part of what I do in terms of buying at the store, but I often, you know, I, I still spend time procuring equipment and, you know, wallpaper and <laughs> all this, <laughs> all this stuff. Um, it's certainly easy for me to get involved with that. Um, Will loves a good rabbit hole. Yeah. yeah. But even, even um, when you were talking about the chocolate at the top of this conversation, it is a lot about where something is from and the story connected to where it's from. And, um, you mentioned, so to, to just get back to how you got to Monger's provisions, sounds like you both ended up moving back to Michigan. Yes. Yeah. Independently. Yeah. So we, we had, we explored opening something up. And when I say explored, I mean, sat around in our respective apartments on couches, talking about it for an extremely long period of time over the course of years when we were, when we were both living out there, um, I knew I wanted to do something in food, you know, to give it a shot. And Zach at that point had transitioned out of the kitchen and back into specialty retail when he was working at Byright. And so we talked about potentially doing something in California, but I, I was, as much as I loved the Bay Area in certain ways, I was also kind of burnt out on living there. And we decided that opening something up in the Bay Area for a variety of reasons um, didn't make a lot of sense. And then we moved home, not with the sole intention of opening up a cheese shop within, you know, six to nine months of moving home. But I guess it was a little closer to a year, but... Um, in my, in the back of my mind, I had this sort of like two to five year plan on 
taking a crack at something in the food business where I'd move home. I'd continue working as a geologist in environmental consulting, save a little cash. And, you know, sometime around, uh, you know, 2021, 2022, <laughs> uh, maybe open something up. And it, so, but we moved home at about the same time and then it, things moved a lot quicker than I think either one of us were anticipating in that adventure. And what was it that kind of sped it up? Was there just like an opportunity kind of it's now or never kind of situation like, or. Yeah, I, I think it was an opportunity, you know, Will had started to work at Gail's chocolates, which was his cousin's chocolate shop. And that really, you know, I think Jessica, your point about the sourcing, like that really got Will focused on chocolate and sourcing and seeing single origin chocolate. I came and helped him out for the holiday season at Gail's. And at some point we tried to do this idea there and it didn't work. Um, for a variety of reasons, that wasn't her vision for the next generation of her business. And so we, at that point, we're kind of like taken this idea and played with it and we're far enough on a ledge that we like needed to do something now. We had, Will also had twins at this point um, who were six months old. So yeah, we had done a couple pop-ups at the chocolate shop where, you know, Zach was working at the shop, um, you know, nine to five basically, but we also had this, we were playing around with different ideas of how to get traffic, you know, improve traffic in the non-holiday season. And so Zach did a couple of these cheese pop-ups where he's just, you know, he bought some cheese, he put an event on Facebook and, you know, Zach Berg cheesemonger and, you know, come to Gail's Chocolates and Zach will stand behind the counter and do some cheesemongering at this, at this chocolate shop. And, you know, we didn't know what to expect, uh, but people showed up. Some of them were related to Zach and some of them, <laughs> you know, were friends. But a lot of people showed up who we had never seen nor met nor heard of before. And we were like, all right, there's some, you know, there's some legs to this idea. It's it's interesting that there are enough people um who are just looking for a cheesemonger on a random weekend day. And, you know, I think the first one was in the fall. And we sold more chocolate. Yeah, and and it certainly helped with the sales of the chocolate that day and just traffic in general. So, so where was there a, um, what was the cheese scene like in, in Detroit? Um, I mean, were there, were there cheese shops? I mean, I think, you know, Zingerman's is really well known, but that's all the way in Ann Arbor. Where did yeah. you, where did, did people have a place to, you know, get turned on to good cheese or? There are a couple different cheese shops as well as some really great grocery stores in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. um, if you're talking about Detroit proper, there is DeVries and Company, which is a cheese shop in the historic Eastern Market District, which has been around since the 1800s. But there has not been dozens of cheese shops or, you know, I think of the Bay Area where there's like five or six really great shops. And then you also have the grocery stores and there's a lot of ways to get cheese in Michigan, in Southeastern Michigan. I think that they're really, I always say, I think Zingerman's intimidated everybody. They're doing it so well an hour away from Detroit that 
outside of places that predated Zingerman's, not a place, not a lot had shown up. If you get more north, there's the Cheese Lady franchise, which um, there's a couple all over, and it's a little smaller of a shop footprint. But uh, yeah, I think that there was a real need in the in the Metro Detroit area, and that's we were excited to see that. So where, how did you guys end up with your first brick and mortar, please? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so our very first brick and mortar was in a existing butcher shop in Ferndale um, that was tiny and in our mind somehow had an excess of space that we were going to add a case to. So they were, we split what, 500 square feet between two businesses? Something, something, something like, like that. that. Yeah. We had a short list of places that were open and existing uh, licensed building to sell food that we thought we could add to their footprint because if they were licensed, we would get licensed quickly was our thought behind that. And we were going to just, you know, kind of pop up a semi-permanent pop up in another existing business. And so the butcher shop said, yes, that was our first meeting and they liked the idea. And we dragged a case into this tiny little storefront in a light industrial area in Ferndale, which is a silly place to start a business, but it was, uh, it worked for us. It was a magical place at first. We, um, you know, it was when we, when we knew that the chocolate shop thing wasn't going to work out. Um, it was July of 2017, maybe mid July or late July. And, you know, we, at that point, neither one of us had a job. I had, six month old twins or something, you know, they're five months old. And so we were just, we said, how can we get something open by fourth quarter this year? You know, cause if we can open by fourth quarter this year, even if it's not everything we dreamed of in a store, we can at least get some traction and get going. And so that was the idea was there's no way in hell that we're going to find a space, lease a space, build it out, get licensed in, you know, three months. Um, but when we found this butch, so the idea was like, let's find a place that's already got a food license under the Department of Agriculture, which is who would be licensing us as a retail food establishment. And so we we kind of, you know, made the short list and we, we talked to these guys and they said, yeah, you, sure we'll sublet a little space to you. And we bought an eight foot Howard McRae case and stuffed it in there and bought some shelving. And so for about $16,000, we had a business, which was the case, all of our equipment and all of our inventory. And we opened about a week and a half before Thanksgiving in 2017. So it was uh, <laughs> buckle your seatbelt. It, yeah, I mean, and, and like the the very one of the first days we were open, I remember there was a group of of uh, ladies who came in. You know, they they must have read about us in the news because we did, we got a press release and we were in the free press and we got some good PR. And the butcher shop had had some nice momentum going too at the time. It was very very hole in the wall. Um, kind of cute feel to it. Um, you, you, you knew that you were shopping independent business when you pulled into the parking lot. Um, there are no illusions about that. 
And this group of ladies, I heard them as they were walking out, like, they're never going to make it. <laughs> and, and I, you know, and, you know, I, you couldn't blame them for saying that based on where we were located and what, like Zach said, it was light industrial. Um, we were selling, you know, 10 and 12 and $14 chocolate bars and we were selling um, cheese that was $30 a pound plus and, and uh, it was not, you know, this wasn't a, a, a bougie downtown um, feel. So, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but it worked. People, people liked it. And uh, the storytelling and the quality of the products that we brought resonated with people. And, you know, we were, we were in the black by second week of December or something, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Wow. Wow. And then, um, and then from there you had your own shop without the butcher or. Yeah. So we continued this pattern of opening up before the fourth quarter a couple (laughs) more times. We, we don't learn lessons. Um, and in fact, I, I say that in all kidding aside, it's, we do it strategically because it kicks off a lot of cash right away, but it's really painful to open up a business and then be at your max capacity right away, but it's worked for us. So we existed in the butcher shop for, you know, it was almost instantly where people were like, you guys are going to outgrow this space. And so within a couple months, I think we started to look for a permanent brick and mortar spot for ourselves. And it took us, was it about a year, Will, until we opened up Detroit? Yeah, because it would have been the next holiday season. So we found a spot in Detroit, and then before the holiday seasons of 2018, we opened up our Detroit store while trying to op- while continuing to operate our the spot in Ferndale. Um, yeah, yeah. The Ferndale thing was just kind of it was working. Uh, initially, the plan had been to do this as a temporary pop up and find a spot in Ferndale, but it was working so well um, in general that. We said, well, why don't we open up a Detroit store and get that going? And then, you know, we'll we'll see how this initial location works out in the long run. And, you know, maybe we'll we'll flip the model where we had thought we'd open something up in Ferndale, get that established, open up a Detroit store. Um, but we ended up opening the Detroit store on November 30th of 2018. Um, and that was another, I think we, we signed the lease. We got the keys on October 15th, if I remember correctly. And we were open by November 30th or December 1st. And so we were cruising along with that operation build out too. Um, but it, it worked out. <laughs> Thank God. Yeah. yeah. We've been really, uh, the more I hear our story coming out, the more I'm like, man, the last six years have just been at such a crazy pace. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a, a short break for um, a message from one of our wonderful sponsors of Cutting the Curd. And then we'll be back to hear more of the journey of Monger's Provisions with Zach Berg and Will Werner. 
This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, mm-hmm. incredible training resources are. They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development. You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, And so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University. Cheese State's three-part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry-level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter. The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University field guide. Um, And that is a three-volume resource. It's all digital online. At the end of the course, students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate. Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter, like what is rennet and like why is this cheese so expensive and can pregnant people even eat cheese? At Cheese State, you're among experts, you're among scholars, you're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheeseStateUniversity.com. Welcome back to Cutting the Curd. This is Jessica Kesselman. We are joined by Zach Berg and Will Werner. They are co-owners of Monger's Provisions in Metro Detroit, two locations. And we are talking about um, the journey to uh, their current store operations. One location is about to undergo quite an experience expansion. Is that correct? Yeah, Berkeley's expanding soon. We're expanding as we speak, kind of. So um, we we were in the middle of you guys telling us the story of um, going from the pop-up phase to sharing a space, and then you got it, your own brick-and-mortar place in Detroit, and you've got a few things going on. You tend to love to do it right in the middle of Q4, which kind of worked out in your favor. Um, so was there anything, um, that surprised you, um, about yourselves and doing all of this work? Like, did you, did you find yourselves kind of gravitating to different roles where one of you was more the behind the scenes guy, the other one was more the merchandising guy? Like, how did that play out? I mean, yes, there was plenty of things that surprised us. And I think that, you know, we knew that we would find our own lanes. But I think that like from the very beginning of working together, it was, I don't know, I'll speak for myself. It was surprise after another because you know somebody as a a buddy for years and then working with them is just so different. And so, you know, even simple things like I went to business school. So in some part of my head and I had ran a, you know, a department in a food business. So I was like, oh, I'll, you know, Will's mathematical and all that, but I'll, I'll probably do some of the business stuff and then after like one pass going through spreadsheets being like, oh, I'm not a numbers guy. He's a numbers guy. I'm going to, I'll do food. <laughs> like, uh, I was just so amazed at how, I don't know. I had never seen Will in a professional capacity. So there was a level of sophistication to the way he ran things that was very quickly surprising and, and impressive. And so, you know, he gravitated towards running the financials and the business and I, did a lot of the operations, but we were both in those trenches. And so I feel like we, 
you know, in the beginning, we all wore all hats and it took us a long time to kind of build something where we got to specialize in a more intentional way. Yeah. I mean, and, and your, you know, Zach has this deep network of um, people that he knows in the industry from meeting, you know, her back house from LaQuertia back in 2006 at Zingerman's and, you know, other as people remember Zach and Zach remembers them. And, you know, if you ran into Zach in an elevator in uh, New York in, you know, 1999, he might still have your phone number and call you occasionally. <laughs> um, I just like people. Uh, yeah. And, and um, I love to, it's a good, it's a good, uh, it's a good match. You guys kind of the yin and the yang. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I love to connect with people and share experiences with people and I love sampling food to people, but for it's different for Zach, you know, and even now, uh, you know, the employees will, Zach will tell me something that an employee told him about their personal life. And I'm like, how did, how did you guys even get on that subject? You know, <laughs> like, mm-hmm. and, and, um, it's just part of his nature. And so it is, it's, we're extremely different in a lot of ways, but it, it can also be very complimentary, you know. So, um, when you, um, well, let me, let me backtrack for a second. Do you remember when you hired your first employee? Like what, what has the trajectory of growth been like? Like how long, how long into this before you were able to start building a team? Pretty quickly. I think we hired an employee within, I mean, because it was the holidays, it very quickly became like, neither of us can work every moment of every minute we're open. So we need some help. And so we started putting together staff pretty quickly. It didn't really coalesce into a real team until that like eight months to a year mark. But the trajectory has just been crazy. I mean, we're, we're at this point, a team of 17 of us. including Will and I. And, you know, it's not worth all the different counters we've opened and closed and opened and closed as we try to find the right two places. But we, you know, at this place, at this point, we have two spots, one of which is a little over, I'm sorry, it's a little under 3,000 square feet and we're about to add 1,200 square feet. And the other one is just under 1,000 square feet. And so, two fairly good sized stores and 17 people in, in 15 years. It's been a crazy trajectory. Five, what, five years, six was, years, years. Five years. Sorry. Yeah. What, um, what was, uh, the decision-making process like to expand? I mean, I, I, I can imagine it. I don't know. Is, is there ever a good time or is it a leap of faith or do you kind of like plan it? Like how long, um, ahead of time, like in the past, did you guys have this idea that you were going to expand this space? And, and, and it's kind of going into, um, uh, you're going into uh, like a wine bar situation, correct? Yeah. We're going to add a on-premise license in our Berkeley store and we'll add 1200 square feet that can be either just an extension of the existing store or can be, you know, shut off in a way that would be a private event space. And it will have a wine bar in that event space. So how um, do you make that decision, first of all, to 
um, have more than one location going, and then to expand into not only expand your square footage, but also the diversity of what your business is like. What's that decision-making process like? Um, well, I want you to start. Yeah, I mean, it, it came to you in a dream. <laughs> I, I think that there's knowing the knowing knowing the margins um, that you can produce in a successful business in specialty food, and you know, again, to the kind of the complementary um, skill sets. You know, we're, we're fortunate enough to have good connections with people who work at Byright and people who work at Zingerman's and, you know, they're companies that are established and successful and they're also very willing to help people out. And so with information from them and other, you know, other sources, you can kind of say, well, in order for two partners to even approach making a living, you know, um, the revenue has to be kind of at a certain level. Um, and knowing that that may not be achievable out of one location or that you're going to have to, you can have one location, but you're going to have to have catering be, you know, several hundred thousand dollars a year, um, to attain that level. So, you know, that informs, um, that certainly informs that decision. Also, knowing who our clients were, we opened the Detroit store. We established a, a kind of a great client base there. We had people coming down from the suburbs um, to visit us, but we also knew that some of those people would visit us more frequently if we had a suburban outpost. Um, and so all of those factors, you know, uh, went into that decision. And we also, the Detroit store had been open a little over a year when the pandemic hit. And when that was happening, we knew that we were, we were potentially looking to open up a suburban location and had looked at some spaces and, and even took a crack at a couple leases that didn't work out. Um, but then the pandemic hit and we kind of did, we, we got lucky and we did some of the right things at the right time. And mm -hmm. so that allowed us to thrive during the pandemic in, in some ways. And, helped us kind of create, have a better understanding of what we wanted to open up with our expansion um, in terms of footprint and location. So I don't, does that make any sense at all? Yeah. Yeah. Zach, do you have anything you want to add to that? Yeah. You know, I think that, you know, I totally agree with Will. We kind of knew based on needing to provide for two households, and just the nature of Detroit, that we were always going to have two spaces. What and how big they were was still the question mark. And, you know, pandemic was such a unique and strange time for us, but it did give us 
you know, some space to kind of decide what that second space needed to be. And we knew it needed to be something that could uh, be modular, right? Whether we were going to do a whole lot more shipping and virtual tastings and things like that. Well, then we know we need a lot of space to ship out of. But if that all dries up, it needs to be a good retail place and we can go into more food service. And so it can't be just a warehouse. And that kind of helped us, you know, decide where we wanted to land. And so we knew we needed something that could, you know, that wasn't in another light industrial area. And, you know, that the business did change. We ended up doing a lot less virtual tastings now and we're moving towards food service with this wine bar. But um, it's been really challenging to, you know, you mentioned like the decision-making process. We have five years of historical data, three of which are a global pandemic. And so there's not a lot of information. You know, our data is uh, not as rich as, you know, a non-independent business or a business of a decades or Zingerman's or Byright. And so we're, we're always, um, I don't know, playing a lot by instinct because of that, I think. Yeah. Definitely the, the pandemic, you know, we, the word pivot was used oh. a lot, right? Everybody learned to pivot. We had to pivot. And I think it's also flexibility. And so yeah. like you're saying, like, looking at your business through the lens of flexibility, um, you know, whether it's physical space or, you know, do you have the physical space to shift to a different kind of um, channel, like to go from, you know, face-to-face retail to mail order or, you know, catering or do things in person um, uh, and such. So um, what have you... um, I guess I, I'm, I'm curious as well about um, what else you have found value in doing during this time. You talked a little bit about, um, you know, going into food service now, you were doing virtual tastings. Um, when you have your hands full running these two operations, you add a layer of e-commerce, you offer classes, you... Like, and when do you, have you ever taken on just too much and like, Hey, this is a great idea. Let's do it. And then you're like, Oh wait, no, if we can't do this very well or. Yeah. I mean, I mean, yeah, (laughs) regularly. I I think that I like to say that we're a small business and we learn what we can do by people asking us to do it. We just tend to say yes and then figure it out. And sometimes after one of those exercises, we have a new arm of the business that other people want. You know, virtual tasting was a local community group was like, people are going nuts. Can we just deliver cheese to their doorstep and you join us on Zoom? And it was wildly successful. And then, you know, it went from a small community group to a Fortune 500 companies doing the same thing. And we're in the middle of that right now with like, oh, you want little boards at the theater? Great, we'll get little boards to the theater. And now all of a sudden we're making a small little board that's, you know, might be a new arm of the company or something like this, uh, or a new offering, I guess, not an arm of the company, but, um, and it adds to complexity. And so there's often this kind of tension of, do we need to streamline our offerings or keep offering more? And uh, I don't know that we've ever found that balance. I think that we're, we're still riding that, you know? Yeah. No, like it's, it's a great question. And in food, it, 
all of these things are more complicated. E-commerce, for example, you know, when we first started up and people would be like, why don't you get, you know, you get into e-commerce. And it's like, I barely have room for a meat slicer. If I do e-commerce and we're selling perishables, then I've got to have a freezer. I've got to have insulation. I've got to have ice packs. You know, there's all these logistical issues. And so we, we actively avoided doing any e-commerce for the first couple of years. And then when the pandemic hit, it was like, oh, well, we've got the store full of perishable inventory. Um, we had the website set up. So we had a Shopify website built so that people could order hats and cheese boards, you know, but there was no delivery. There was no shipping really. Um, and then it was like, oh, that no one's coming into the store. There's a, you know, whatever day it was, mid March 12th or something. And I remember it was like the store did like $60 and we were like, oh, this is real. So overnight <laughs> we, you know, we spent seven days photographing everything in the store, putting it on the website. We sent out an email and said, Hey, you can shop most of the collection online. And overnight we were an e-commerce company and we closed the store for shopping in, you know, in person and just filled it with ice packs and insulation and cardboard boxes. Um, and so, yeah, just. That's why we knew Bear Clay had to be bigger. Yeah. You know? yeah. The yeah. ability yeah. to be flexible was really critical, but it, it is, it's like Zach said, you, you know, you start one thing and um, really quickly, it gains momentum. Like we had done in-person classes before the pandemic and they would be successful some of the time. And then we started doing them for the public ticketed, you know, uh, taste Conte, you know, or taste Alpine cheese with Zach on zoom. And we were selling 40, 50 tickets to these things. And they were more successful than our in-person classes had ever been and, and more profitable. And, um, and then those turned into private events. And then we started, we ran some Google ads in like September for, you know, uh, cheese, you know, virtual cheese tasting. And by the middle of October, we had fully booked December with virtual events in, you know, 2020. And it, it was just, you know, it was, it was nuts. With your connection and, just, and passion in your in your mission statement coming to, coming to fruition. Yes. Yeah, because be, to, being to, an e-commerce company only is not what either one of us wanted to do with the food. It's just you know. Yeah. It's it, it's it's fine, but it doesn't you know it's not rewarding in the same way. Right. Right. If I can just summarize all of our offerings right now, because I think it does encapsulate kind of this tension and, and the pivoting and pivoting back. Um, at this current moment, you can go into either Berkeley or Detroit and do retail shopping. You could get a grilled cheese at either location. You could order a subscription box that would come to your house, you know, and then more e-commerce format. You can order e groceries on e-commerce platform, either you know, just retail off of those or enjoy some of our virtual experience boxes with pre-recording tastings, or you could schedule an event with us, 
Or you could schedule a wedding with us would be in person. I mean, there's just, there are so many different buckets that we try to play in. It's really, uh, it's a, it's a very challenging thing for a small business because you never want to say no. Right. And you never know what your next opportunity is going to grow into be. And so, uh, we find ourselves saying yes a lot. We're just a monger who can't say no. And and the um, Metro Detroit area is supporting you guys. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is like you can't, if the community is not there to spend their money or show up or jump online, then there's no business. Yeah. So. And, and, you know, that's, a, I think, I appreciate you saying that because I think sometimes of us as like crazy masochists in the way we've been growing, but- We've been growing that way because the community is asking us to, you know, many times, every time we've opened a store, Detroit, Berkeley, Ferndale, there are customers who come in and thank us for opening. And as a entrepreneur, you're like, thank, thank us. Like, thank you for being here. And they're like, no, no, we've needed a shop like this. And like, we're just so happy you're here. And like, I, I'm quick to emotion. So I just want to cry right then. And like, uh, it's really rewarding and amazing. Like Metro Detroit, to your point, like every time we open, they thank us. And so they seem to want more. It seems to, and it seems to raise ships throughout the area. You know, like, I don't think DeVries is selling less cheese because we exist or any of the Whole Foods or Zingerman's or any of that. And we're able to collaborate more with those cheese shops and, you know, build more of a network. Um, Singerman's Creamery and myself and the Cheese Ladies and Leland A. Raclette are all in the process of creating a Michigan Cheese Guild, um, which is super exciting. And, I, you know, That's people awesome. seem responsive. I love that. I, I love that. That. Yes. Yes. We need more. More independent cheese shops do not. They don't. They don't make it more difficult. They make it more enriching for everyone, for the whole community and, and finding those opportunities to network and build something together. Like, I, I cannot wait to have you back on to talk about the Cheese Guild. Um, so I, I want to stay on the Michigan tip. Um, so are there local or regional producers that you work with that you'd like to kind of give a shout out to or that or tell us about that you sell in your shop? And that could be cheese. It could be chocolate. It could be um, another provision. I do want to point out, on your website, your list of cheeses and your list of chocolate are almost as long as each other, which is pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah. Um, so are there any local or regional producers you want to, you want to give some love to? Absolutely. Um, I'll let Will talk chocolate because he's our chief chocolate officer. And, you know, just because it kind of got lost in the story when we first started, it was just cheese and chocolate and a little charcuterie. And so five years ago, there was no tin fish, no, you know, wine, this and that. We've really been growing organically in the various provisions we offer. Um, And so that's part of the reason chocolate's so long. But still, if you walk in the store, chocolate is the, you know, top three footprints in either location, which is awesome. And I think we'll always be that way. But we work with, you know, Zingerman's Creamery, we'll mention them at the top being both a center for information and collaboration. And they, of course, have the Creamery, which we love working with. And their cheese is just always getting better in such a fun way, as well as their gelato, which we now serve in Berkeley. Um, we work with Idle Farms, which I think has been doing just such an amazing job of making Michigan a dairy state in the sense of the award scene. And just, I mean, they've been crushing it at ACS and various 
competitions, just getting medals. And their cheese is so awesome up in Northport, Michigan. Um, Evergreen Lanes on the west side of the state is a fun one that we pepper in from time to time. And Leelanau Raclette. Um, and then outside of cheese, you know, it's awesome to tap into your food scene and all of a sudden want to find a Michigan honey um, or the maple syrups. And we're always looking for more. Our jam producer, Tara Gray from Gus and Gray, has been, you know, one of the first products ever to make our shelves that wasn't cheese or chocolate. And she's been, you know, day one with us and an amazing producer out in Easter Market. Um, Will, am I forgetting any Michigan people I'm going to get in trouble for? for <laughs> Oh, beverages, Casamara Club, Bees Squeeze, both awesome beverages. Casamara, if Jessica, you would like them. They're like Italian Amari based sodas, the leisure mm. soda. Um, the beer scene out here is awesome too. And, you know, we've been working with the distilleries and the beer uh, breweries from, you know, day one as pop ups. So I don't want to miss a chance to mention Urban Rest Brewery and people like that. But, and then there's some cool chocolate makers that, you know, we've seen some come and go, but. We work with them. Well, I'd love for you to talk about who we work with in chocolate in the state. Yeah, I, um, Crow and Moss up in Petoskey, uh, Northern Michigan. Um, they do great work. Um, Mike Davies is the proprietor there, and he's um, I mean, he's a small business owner to the bone. You know, I, uh, this holiday season, we had an order for, um, 2,800 packages of our drinking chocolate and we didn't get the lead time that we were hoping to on the order. And, you know, Mike still got the order done because Mike up at Crow and Moss makes our Mongers recipe drinking chocolate for us. And, you know, he also does a, a nice, a really, really great line of bean to bar chocolate um and let's see there's uh mindo chocolate with a, a heavy focus or sole focus on ecuadorian cacao they're over in dexter pretty close to zingerman's um and then oh who else yeah there's some dwar chocolate oh dwar yeah dwar and then you know maple syrup honey one of your questions about what can't we source? There's a a producer of Michigan honey who's also an uh, an entomologist, um, I think PhD student or PhD fellow at this point, and she's been on sabbatical over in Europe. But her honey was just stellar, um, and that unfortunately I can't get right now because she's learning about bugs. <laughs> well, there, people, it's all connected. People who know it's a lot about bugs can also know a lot about honey. Yep. Yep. I um I think, you know, listening to you guys talk, I I don't has 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 ACS ever been in Michigan? No. Okay. And I've been ACS, I've been starting a whisper campaign about listen this. to I, this this podcast interview because you know, just the chocolate and cheese, um, the beer. I mean, it really sounds like we all have to get ourselves to to the Detroit metro area. I personally would love to go on architecture tour, but um, that's another that's another podcast. Um, I do also on the tip of talking about the American Cheese Society. So, listeners, um, Zach and I met uh, last summer 
um, because we were both on a tour with Comte USA of the amazing Jura and visiting Comte cheese, mon- uh, cheese makers because, um, uh, well, Zach was there because he won the scholarship, yeah. the Comte scholarship that um, awarded him with the trip to visit the region. And Zach also has been a two-time competitor in the Cheesemonger Invitational. And um, so, Zach, to you, um, you obviously take advantage of the opportunities that are offered by this industry. And I just was curious if you could speak to, first of all, what these opportunities do for you um, in your everyday role as a tea shop owner and monger and just what you would say to people as all of these scholarships and such uh, are out there and being advertised right now ahead of ACS and, and you know, the Daphne Zeppos um, uh, fellowships and such. Yeah. I would love to speak to that. I, uh, so yeah, I think that it's remarkable how much the industry has grown up as I've grown up and I just mean to say that I've been selling cheese for now the better part of 15 years. And I can remember standing around and talking about like how cool it would be if there was a competition for mongers. When Adam first talked about it, Adam Moskowitz with Carlos Souffrant, the cheese buyer at Zingerman's at the time, you know, it was like half competition, half cheese rave. And I remember those early conversations. And I remember someone coming up and telling me that there was going to be a new certification through ACS with the CCP. And those were such exciting prospects when I was a young monger. And so as soon as they were opportunities that I could take advantage of, I jumped on them. You know, I, for me, it's been a way for us to like legitimize our efforts. You know, most people don't find themselves cheesemongers because they went to school for it. And there's not a straight path to this job. And it's been nice to find for what, for me, what's acted as milestones along that path. It doesn't mean that you need to go that route, but it gave me some shape to my development and gave me things to study and reasons to study outside of just going to work nine to five. And so I, you know, got my CCP. I competed in uh, a CMI in New York. And then the first time I was in California, I had home court advantage um, and did well at that CMI. And then I just got to do the master's, which was such a humbling and amazing experience. And so, you know, whether it's filling out an application for a, an essay or, you know, doing a competition, I, I couldn't encourage people more to do those things. They, they send you on things you couldn't even imagine. You know, I would never have dreamed of getting a trip to the Jura and that was just so cool. And an essay that's due December 3rd, if you're in our industry, everybody's really busy. Not a lot of people are applying mid-December to an application. Your numbers are good. You should you should apply. <laughs> Everyone, mark your calendars. Yeah. And um, and then uh, you know I want to make sure before we end our conversation, what would you say to someone thinking about opening a cheese shop or have a or someone who has a cheese shop and they're thinking about opening a second location or expanding? Do you? Will and Zach, do you guys have any, just any, any sage advice aside from, and I know there are people out there who will say, don't do it, but they're, but they're saying that while they're thinking of opening a second or third location themselves, like, you know, it's a labor of love, but it is a lot of hard work and it is a crazy thing to be a small business owner. 
Um, so what would you say to people who want to do it or, or expand their current operation? Yeah. If I can start, Will, is that all right? Go for it. I'd say have your network. I know Will made fun of me at the beginning with it on the beginning, but you know, me remembering everybody and, you know, it also does tell to what you were asking Jessica about, you know, taking advantage of opportunities and asking for help, you know, we spent a lot of time with Ari from Zingerman, Sean from Zingerman's, the Bruno brothers on the phone. I mean, many people answered our calls. It was kind of shocking. And I would encourage people to find the people who are willing to spend time with you and, and make sure you have your advisory crew. We're really blessed that we also have each other. And so there's a lot of um, uh, built-in therapy you know, that I can go talk to my best friend about what's bothering me and, and vice versa. And, you know, we also both have our own people that we can talk to outside of each other. And so I think that, that, that would be my, as the emotional one, that's my big warning is, you know, make sure you have your system to deal with all of the ups and downs because there will be plenty. We're both really lucky to have supportive wives and supportive friends. And, uh, it's been, it's been a journey. Yeah. Will, do you have something to add? No, I mean, you know, I, I was, you know, joking about about uh, Zach's networking abilities, but it is, you know, it's a it's a real asset. And while we started the business with very little um, capital, and subsequently have gotten some, you know, loans and additional financing. Um, which, you know, we've gotten a pretty, a, a chunk of that now as we're expanding again. Um, you know, we would not be where we are without the network that we have um, both. It, it goes from, you know, it runs deep, right? It's it's like we're incredibly privileged to have the network we do, um, you know, while Zach and I did not necessarily like grow up, uh, in a position of, you know, a lot of wealth, uh, both of our, our families are solidly middle-class. Um, but when you're starting a small business, you know, if you, you went to high school with someone who's a pretty good business attorney, you know, um, you know, people who are in graphic design, you, you know, that network of people is immensely helpful. And it, we're, we're just so fortunate to have that. Um, it, it's really instrumental in, in where we've, where we've um, been and how far we've gotten. And that's also you know, the, then the, the less, the less touchy feeling part of it is, you know, you gotta, you gotta know your numbers. Um, if there are any resources for small business incubators, like let's say you've never had a cheese shop before you're a monger at an existing shop, or, you know, you work in, uh, you're an architect, but you've always wanted to have a small business, you know, there are a number of programs here in Detroit. Um, 
Tech Town is one has a retail boot camp nationwide. There's a program called Goldman Sachs Ten Thousand Small Businesses. That's for established businesses, but some of these programs are really valuable if you're trying to start something up or if you're trying to scale an existing business. And I can't stress enough like the the value that you can get out of some of the you know mentorship and looking at your business critically. Um, you're trying to understand your operations and your offerings and also looking, you know, no, you got to know the numbers. Um, if you have a ton of money starting up a cheese shop, sh- sure. You can, you know, pick out the fanciest countertops and the nicest slicers and all new equipment. But if you're on a budget, um, it's something that we're dealing with right now as we're expanding, you've, you've got to understand the cost, the true cost of every dollar that you go to spend upfront on startup. And so what I always say is like, figure out what you think your realistic profit margin is. And then every dollar that you're going to spend, think about how many dollars you have to sell to make that dollar back. You know, so let's say you've got a great healthy margin of 10% and you spend a dollar um, on something, you've got to sell $10 of cheese to make that dollar back. And as you get bigger, that margin tends to only go down. Um, so you really got to, you got to <laughs> think about, you know, you got to think about how much you need things when you're starting up, when you're building out, um, what are the, what are the must-haves, what are the wants and, you know, what are the, it would be super nice, but completely unnecessary. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. That was um, that is in the curriculum in elementary school, but um, they talk about um, wants and needs, and um, learn and and it's like something that they start teaching at an early age, and then I think we forget, and then it all comes back as um, as we get older. Um, and I just think that's such great advice, everything that you just said there, Will. Um, and I do also want to bring it back to having a mission statement, because I think you both really um, showed you know, how much your business model and your relationship to each other and to your customers um, is, um, is your mission statement you know, in action, in in true life. So I do, I do encourage everybody to take a look at your website. Um, can you just give us your, um, where we can find you on the web? Yeah, you can find us at, find us at mongersprovisions.com on our website. We're on social media at mongersprovisions. Um, we're individually on social media at cheesemonger Zach Berg. And what's yours, Will? It's Warner Probably Wonka. Warner Wonka. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we are just so thrilled to be on Cutting the Curd. I, I've been listening for a long time. It's, a, it's such an honor to be on this. And uh, thank you for taking the time to chat about Monger's Provisions. Yeah, well, thank you both so much for being here. Um, and I am going to ask you each to tell me offline what your desert, your favorite desert island cheese would be, because I'd like to share that with everybody um, on Instagram. And um, until the next time, I want to welcome um, you guys back another time to talk. But um, uh, you can 
definitely find us all back here on Cutting the Curd. Thank you so much for joining us. And you can find uh, more episodes of Cutting the Curd at heritageradionetwork.org and at your favorite podcast platform. Goodbye, everyone. Curd is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.